Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For eight centuries, Great Britain and Ireland together comprised a united kingdom. 17 years ago, Britain yielded to the 26 Catholic counties, set them up as the Irish Free State. But Protestant Ulster, loyal Northern Ireland, remained within the kingdom. Ireland was partitioned in 1921. The majority of the island left the United Kingdom to form the Irish Free State. But the six counties of the North East immediately left the new Irish state to form Northern Ireland and to continue in the Union. For the most part, Catholics were unhappy with that, continuing to vote for Irish nationalist parties. Last year, in its new constitution, the Irish Free State proclaimed all Ireland a sovereign, independent nation, named not only itself, but the six loyal counties across the border, the Republic of Era. The largest nationalist party, Sinn Féin, continue to demand a border poll. But the majority of people have voted to maintain the union, or at least the status quo throughout Northern Ireland's history. So, what is the case for a united Ireland? I invited Colin Harvey to make the argument for that change. Colin Harvey is Professor of Human Rights Law in the School of Law at Queen's and Director of the Human Rights Centre. He's also a board member with Ireland's Future, a lobby group which advocates constitutional change. Professor Colin Harvey, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. Thank you very much, Kieran. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and your motivations? Well, I'm Colin Harvey. I'm a professor of human rights law in the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm also director of the Human Rights Centre. I'm a former head of the Law School at Queen's. I've been a commissioner on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. And I've been in academic life for nearly 30 years in a few years' time. So... I'm an academic who's been also engaged in public life as well. I'm on the management board of Ireland's future and certainly in a, in a post-Brexit context, as it will be widely known to your audience, I've been involved in the constitutional conversation about possible constitutional change on the island of Ireland. And that constitutional change which Ireland's future is talking about at the end of the day, that's a united Ireland. That's a united Ireland. That's the terminology used in the Good Friday Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement very much frames the discussion. 
But it's interesting to note that many of the contributors to this conversation use the language of a new Ireland. And I think that gives a flavour for how the discussion and the dialogue is going at the moment. That I think many people see this as really an opportunity to to think about the future in very transformative terms as well. You know, how can we do things differently? How can we make things better for everyone who shares this island? So, a different Ireland, a better Ireland, a constitutionally changed Ireland, a new Ireland, a united Ireland. Sell it to me. In terms of the future, you're likely to be better off. You're likely to earn more. You're likely to live longer. You're likely to live in a society with a a better health system. Uh, You're likely to live in a society where fairness and decency are hardwired in. Uh, Northern Ireland will be back in the European Union with better model, essentially, of social protection for everyone on the island of Ireland. And if you have children, your children are likely to to be better educated in the new arrangements that will emerge. So really, like many, many other people involved in this really collective conversation about change, it's an opportunity to do things better in the future. But really, you know, I'm involved in this as somebody who's worked my entire life for human rights, equality and social justice to make this island a better place for everyone. I'm particularly interested in the most marginalised and vulnerable people on the island, that everybody benefits for the change uh, that is likely to happen in the future. What strikes me from your answer is the terminology that we always associated with United Ireland. That is to say, at its most basic, Irish freedom, self-determination, even decolonisation, you're not mentioning any of those themes or anything like those themes. Or We're talking about a new United Ireland in 2022. And I think we have to talk about the Good Friday Agreement and constitutional change in the here and now and where we are now. And I think it's important that everyone feels comfortable and welcome to join that space. And I think language is an important part of that. If you think about it, we've been subjected to the ravages of Brexit, you know, taken out of the European Union against our will. Essentially, through the Good Friday Agreement, we have an opportunity to automatically re-enter the European Union. I think in many ways it would be bizarre if we weren't talking about that. But let's think about that. That's about essentially rejoining a, a transnational European pluralist project. So that's a new dynamic to the discussion. And I think it brings new language as well. Brexit's something which comes up an awful lot when we discuss new constitutional arrangements. Perhaps Brexit is a catalyst and has accelerated this conversation, brought it forward. Could it have brought the conversation forward a little too quickly? You'll notice that many people involved in the discussion, including myself and Ireland's Future and others, have been using the careful language of responsible management, you know, to the point at which you're almost repeating on a daily basis now the language of planning and preparing responsibly for change. Uh, Brexit has put, if you think about it like this, the the external border, an an external border of the European Union is on this island. A journey from Belfast to Dublin is a journey into the EU and then when you return to Belfast, back out of the EU. That's quite remarkable 
in terms of discussion. So in some ways, it's not surprising to me that given the, the Good Friday Agreement offers the people of Northern Ireland a choice about the future, whether to stay in the union with Britain and the catastrophe really unfolding around Brexit or re-enter the European Union around the, the principle of consent mechanisms that are there. So it doesn't surprise me, but ultimately, Kieran, it's important to note the language framing this discussion is careful and responsible language about managing this choice and getting it right. Um, and that, I think, comes from a, a place of profound care, concern and respect. This society has been torn apart in the past through conflict. We're a post-conflict society. Everyone I know involved in this discussion cares deeply about the people here, about not re-traumatising people, about managing this well, so that when the time comes, when people are given the choice and when they do vote across the island, they're crystal clear in advance that they know what they're voting for or against and that we manage this properly and well. Well, let's talk about that management and let's talk about that planning. A United Ireland or a New Ireland or a constitutionally changed Ireland can only come about as a result of a referendum. When do you want that referendum? First thing to, to, to keep in mind is framing this quite rightly, framed it in terms of the, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, the, the choice is there and the mechanics are set out there. I think ultimately the, the priority at the moment is, is doing the preparatory work first. So getting things right in advance so that when the time comes and when people are given the choice, they know what they're voting for. So to, to my mind, that's the, the, the primary question at the moment. And none of that due, due diligence, preparatory work will, will be wasted. So when the time comes, whether it's this decade or next decade, uh, that people know precisely what they're voting for. Personally speaking, I do think, and this is very much a personal view, that a time frame... Uh, an intergovernmentally agreed time frame would be helpful to focus minds on the preparatory work. Again, speaking personally, you know, I would like at some point to be offered this choice. You know, we, we wake up every morning, uh, we read the newspapers, uh, we listen to the radio, and we're constantly told about the principle of consent. Well, at some point, I would genuinely, as somebody who lives on this island, like to be asked the question, the constitutional question. But like everyone else, I'd like to know uh, what I'm voting for uh, in that referendum. So I think ultimately the priority is do the preparatory work now, get this right. I th my view is it's plausible, it's plausible that there'll be uh, a vote on this this decade. I think everything politically, everything that's happening around this island and across these island islands tells me that these concurrent referendums are likely to happen this decade, perhaps towards the end of this decade. But the primacy at the moment, the thing that I'd like to stress is just doing the preparatory work now because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in advance. So you are talking about an, a referendum, not on a principle, and then we'll work it all out later, a la Brexit. And let's face it, if you were for Brexit, it was a complete success. I know people call it a catastrophe, but, but in terms of the campaign, the Brexiteers won. So is that, are you talking about a referendum on the principle of the thing? We'll sort it out later, or a referendum on basically a final deal. It's all worked out and you you would approve or reject a final deal. Essentially, what many of us are talking about is the 
opposite and reverse of the Brexit shambles, um, where essentially people didn't really know what they were voting for and it was all worked out afterwards. We cannot repeat that fundamental error on the island of Ireland. You know, myself, many others, too much respect for people on this island to get this wrong. So there's a strong emphasis among participants in this discussion on the constitutional change side on doing the work in advance. So as much as we can know in advance of a referendum, we need to know. People absolutely have to do the work now. We cannot, and I cannot stress this enough, uh, replicate what happened in Brexit. In some ways, many people involved in this constitutional conversation are, are motivated by the fundamental errors and mistakes that we saw play out and that we're living with. Like, let's be clear to your listeners today. We are living with the, the disaster that is the Brexit mess. Nobody, nobody I know or have met here wants to replicate that for people here. We simply care too much about everybody in Northern Ireland, the North and everyone on this island to do that. Can I ask about some of the recent polls? Uh, we had a recent Irish Times poll, which was half of respondents, 50% in Northern Ireland, said they would vote against Irish unity. That's 50%, half, which uh, those included 21% of a Catholic background. I think none of us really who follow these things closely would be um, surprised by either statistic there. But only just over a quarter, 26% of the people in the North, in Northern Ireland, said they would vote for unity. Why have a referendum on the back of figures like that? Well, I want to start by commending, really, first of all, your, yourself for doing this podcast, but also want to commend the Irish Times and the Orange Project. I should declare that I'm on the advisory group of the Orange Project, that academic project that's involved in this work. I think it's really heartening to see the effort and energy that's going into this, really, by the Irish Times and the Orange Project to think this through. And if anything, I hope that what this latest poll does is it highlights the work of that academic project, the Orange Project, and you know there'll be a series of further articles emerging around this. So if the good news out of all this, I think, is that the work of Orange, which is an academic project that isn't really very well known, I think, across the island now, is being highlighted, and that's to be commended. I don't think that um, much of what's emerged in the polling will surprise too, too many people. I think polls very often are snapshots. I think we have to contextualise one poll. But I think what's, what matters now is that the evidence that emerging is tracked and forensically tested, if you like, over time, that we do more of these polls, that we'd have more focus groups. Because in some ways, it just confirms what we're, we're talking about today. We need honest, reliable, credible evidence to inform uh, the discussion because nobody... Kieran, nobody is talking that I know of a, a referendum tomorrow or next week. Um, and just to re reiterate again, I think this body of evidence is all very, very helpful so as that whatever decisions are made are, are well-informed decisions. And I think all sides of the debate really will welcome credible, reliable evidence wherever it emerges from. But again, opinion polls are snapshots at a particular moment in time. There have been a range of opinion polls. It all has to be contextualised. But all new 
verified and reliable information is very, very welcome, I think, for everybody involved in this discussion. But bearing in mind what you said about the polls, and I know, you know, it comes up in podcasts and political conversations all the time. We, You know, we newspapers, academics, we all use polls. Polls are part of our conversation. We know they have weaknesses, they have strengths. And in a sense, we enjoy them. They're, they're for a specific reason. But there are there are things that should come up the, in terms of, of, of the polls. And one of the things that came up in this poll, I think, was almost a fifth of voters in Northern Ireland, including nearly a third of voters from a Protestant background, said they would find a vote in favour for United Ireland almost a impossible to accept. Now, again, that's no surprise. But would you agree with Brendan O'Leary, one of the academics involved in this project, that potential loyalist violence in the wake of a vote for Irish unity has to be taken seriously? Now, certainly, when I go out and speak to people in the estate, if you want to put it that way, people from an Irish nationalist background, they would be afraid that, yeah, they can vote for United Ireland and yes, it's nice, it would be great, uh, but they would be genuinely afraid of, of of a violent loyalist backlash. Well, obviously, this is a very timely and, and relevant topic at the moment, but I won't really want to start by, in a sense, um, making the discussion rather more boring and, and tedious, really. I think that the difficulty with headline polls, right, is that they, they, they attract a lot of attention for... Uh, a moment in time and, and then they fade away and there's a lot of drama and all that. But, you know, ultimately the, the theme I want to underline really today and this podcast is the rather boring long-term project of, of managing any change process and transition here properly. So I think that the polling has to be seen in that wider context. Yes, of, of course. Look, w- what uh, I want to emphasize today as somebody who's worked in the area of human rights all my life is that, you know, people will be anxious and worried about change. You know, not just unionism and loyalism. You know, many people in Northern Ireland will be worried and anxious about change of such a magnitude. Obviously, the Good Friday Agreement also includes the principle of peaceful and democratic means only. I very much hope that all participants in the discussion take those uh, principles seriously as well. You know, it would be naive and foolish to ignore the fact we're in a post-conflict society where violence has certainly been used in the past and where loyalist paramilitaries are, are still very much around. So I'm not naive. I'm not foolish about that. It's absolutely essential that people feel reassured. And I think one of the things that will help in doing that is making sure that any proposals that are merged, however this is done and achieved, are designed in a way that respect British identity, unionist culture and identity robustly and securely. Not because Colin Harvey or anybody else says that, but because they are legally hardwired into the proposals that emerge, that so even where people end up living in an outcome that they do not prefer, that their protections and guarantees are absolutely copper-fastened into the new arrangements and that they are warmly welcomed but robustly protected with enforceable rights that they can uphold if there is any you know, diminution in protections in the new arrangements. That sort of brings me on to a number of questions. I don't know which one to pick, but it occurs to me that uh, in terms of identity for a start, um, I couldn't help noticing at the time we made this podcast that Irish language groups were celebrating that the monarch, King Charles, 
signed into law language legislation. And certainly that's British language legislation, you know. And is there a concern maybe that people as nationalists do materially better, socially better, culturally better in Northern Ireland that the that this vision of a united Ireland will fade away, I suppose, or become less relevant to people? Well, reiterate the point at, at, the, at the start, you know, in terms of those advocating change, there's really, there's a lot of complexities and nuances, but the message is rather simple in the sense that people will be better off in new arrangements, in a fair and you know decent uh, society as a result of that. But obviously, on all sides of the argument, this is ultimately about persuasion. So on, for example, the pro-union side, it's not going to be very persuasive to many people in the North, Northern Ireland, to say that we're we're living the dream in the union of peoples when the reality for many people is socioeconomic devastation and their rights are constantly undermined. But I suppose what that does is it, it, it puts it up, if you like, to the pro-union side of the debate, not to just be complacent and sit on their hands, if you like, and just say everything is wonderful. So I think I'm looking forward to hearing, for example, on the pro-union side, what the proposals are around rights and equality and social justice going forward. Many people here are deeply anxious that you know the UK is becoming a very, very hostile environment for human rights. So I'd like to personally, I'd like to hear more from the pro-union side about how those anxieties will be re you know, be addressed. But ultimately, my view remains that, you know, all the evidence I've seen is that um, Northern Ireland and its people will be better off in new arrangements and back within the European Union in a fair society where fairness and decency is hardwired in and, and people will ultimately, you know, be better off. You know, you mentioned the pro-union side there and the pro-union case and the largest uh, unionist party is the DUP. Uh, I think it would be casually said here, there and everywhere that uh, it, the DUP would put people off the union and certainly maybe people who are ambiguous about the, unity, uh, about the union wouldn't vote for the DUP in a fit. But other people would say to me straight out, do you not think that Sinn Féin put people off the idea of Irish unity? Well, obviously... First of all, I'm looking forward to hearing how the DUP would attempt to persuade or interact with, with somebody like me here. But look, let, let's be clear, you know, speaking now in terms of Ireland's future, uh, Ireland's future held the three arena event. There were 10 political parties spoke at that event. There were five leaders, political parties spoke at that event. The aim is to create a, an inclusive, broad and deep coalition of civic and political coalition for change. And, and only such a broad and deep coalition for change will actually stand any chance at all of persuading a majority of people to, to, to opt for change. Look, the Good Friday Agreement, where this is all starting from, focuses on people. The debate on constitutional change doesn't belong to any government, British or Irish. It doesn't belong to any political party. It doesn't belong to academics or queens or anyone else. It belongs to the people of this island. So any campaign around this, any attempt to persuade people must be broad, deep and inclusive, a civic and political movement for positive change. On that movement and on that change, 
I've spoken on this podcast about Quebec, about Scotland. I never got around to Catalonia yet. But in the event that this referendum is held and the pro-New Ireland side lose, what happens then? I mean, do people get on with Northern Ireland then? Do people, you know, what, what, what happens then? To many of your listeners, this this will sound like a, an odd argument, but it's one I'm personally uh, persuaded by myself. I think we'll be better off as a society for having these arguments and debates in the open and honestly based on evidence. I am frankly at this point fed up with living in a society where people people allege that we talk about the constitutional question all the time. We do not talk about the constitutional question all the time. We avoid talking about the constitutional question all the time. And that's in itself destabilizing. I think we'll be better off. We'll be a better democratic society. We'll be healthier. It'll be a stress test for the Good Friday Agreement. I accept that and it'll be challenging. But at the far end of it, whatever the outcome, if we manage this right, if we have the discussions and debates in the open, we'll be better off as a society for hearing the arguments because all sides will have to significantly up their game in relation to this. And I'm looking forward to that conversation and discussion, whatever the eventual outcome, um, because I think not enough is being done at the moment to face into that constitutional question. There's so many lazy caricatures, stereotypes and cliches. We don't, we don't deal with the constitutional question here. We spend our lives avoiding dealing with it. I prefer to face into these things rather than walk away from them. I suppose one of those cliches is historical determinism. That is to say that uh, Northern Ireland has failed, it will fall apart, and that therefore unity is inevitable, uh, regardless of any campaign or anything else. Although Northern Ireland never, never at peace with itself, never... And it still remains stable. Do you think it's a mistake for people to simply carry on with the core belief that a United Ireland is inevitable and you just need to wait for it? Speaking for myself, you know, very, very personally in the context of this uh, podcast, I don't think anything is inevitable in life and a United Ireland isn't inevitable either. History, human history is full of, of, of movements, civil and political mu- movements who said things were inevitable that never came to pass. That's why, you know, my view is, and the view of many, many others is that you need to do the hard work of persuasion. And it's clear from the evidence emerging that there's a lot more to do on the chain side in order to persuade people in the North, Northern Ireland to to vote for for change. And in terms of you know, some of the cliches about Northern Ireland and, um, you know, approaching this entirely from the viewpoint that, that Northern Ireland has failed or whatever. Let, let me speak very personally. You know, I'm, um, I'm from a, you know, council state in Derry. I'm now professor of human rights law, director of the Human Rights Centre, former head of the law school, at Queen's University Belfast. In many ways, I've had a very, very successful career. So, in significant respects, for for many people, uh, uh, Northern Ireland isn't just one big failure, you know. So, I think we enter these conversations thinking about the strengths of Northern Ireland and the strengths of the South, 
not uh, that the story is one of catastrophic failure in both parts of the island because it, it isn't. And I know there's often a focus on Northern Ireland on the failure end. There's much in Northern Ireland that people here can be rightly proud of. So I think ultimately what you're talking about in the constitutional change conversation is how do we build on the successes north and south? How do we recognise the failures north and south and address those? And particularly for me in the area of human rights, you know, the treatment of women, children north and south, the treatment of minority ethnic communities, the treatment of the LGBTQI community. You know, it's just, there's there's a litany or failure in relation to uh, human rights that we need to do better on. But, you know, I don't think monolithic narratives about failure don't help. They're good things in the North, Northern Ireland. We need to build on those. You're very much associated with Ireland's future, the brand, the organisation. What is, what exactly is Ireland's future, the organisation? We're a civil society organization like many other civil society organizations out there um, that very, very express, expressly uh, non-party political. You know, we are not aligned to any political party. And I reiterate the point I made earlier that, you know, this is a broad and deep civic conversation for change. We're ultimately uh, a civic organization who take the words of the Good Friday Agreement seriously. The Good Friday Agreement rests the constitutional status of the North Northern Ireland on consent. Uh, we are in favour of new and united Ireland. Uh, all our documentation, and we've also produced a range of policy papers dealing with some of the evidence around this, you know, stresses planning and pre preparing for change. We genuinely want a wide and deep civic conversation across the island. We've had public meetings all over the island. We've meeting in London, Westminster, we're meeting in the meetings in the US. We're trying to encourage civic conversation. But we've also produced substantial policy documents as well to try and inform and shape the debate. So like many other uh, civil society organizations, we have a particular perspective and view. We're arguing for change, but the change that we are arguing and advocating for is constitutional change on the Good Friday Agreement in full compliance with the good with, with that agreement. And who set it up? Um, well, we're a group of, you know, individuals who have come together really to to form an organisation, uh, Ireland's Future. We've got a website and in terms of management board, the chair of the organisation is Francis Black. Um, the secretary is Niall Murphy. Our chief executive is Jerry Carlisle. Uh, the management board members are all listed on the website. So like any other civic organisation, we've come together as a group of individuals to set it up. Like, And I'll be, Kieran, I'll be, be very open here today. Like, In some senses, we're doing all this you know, on a voluntary role, like many other civic organisations, we're, we're trying to, you know, keep this going, holding down our day jobs and, and trying to, like, ultimately, the way I would describe it is just in a sense, originated around all those letters that you've heard about in terms of, you know, Leo Varadka and others that I suppose my, my sense of responsibility that I'm involved in Ireland's future because we want to get this right. And Increasingly after Brexit, I was meeting more and more people, including the people involved in Ireland's future, who thought, you know, this is likely to happen. We need to get this right. We need these conversations. It needs to be a civic conversation. 
So again, reiterating the point about beyond party political space. Uh, because, so because I mean, I, I understand that, now, and you, you know, you know the question. Because when I discussed, you know, Ireland's future, many, many people are convinced that it's a front for Sinn Féin. You reject that out of hand. I reject that out of hand, and I reiterate the point we've made. You know, the three arena event that we've held. Look at our. We've published a, a very substantial document at that event around shaping a new and united Ireland. Take a look through the first litany of pages and the number of people who participate, including political parties, you know, 10 parties, five party leaders. You know, we have a, a full range of civic and political engagement in, in our work. And, you know, the debate doesn't belong to one party and we're resolutely non-party political in our work. And we don't just say that, you know, we demonstrate it. Just look at our events, look at our work. Uh, in terms of the conversation, the civic conversation, and this is, an, I'm going to admit it, it's a bit of an uncomfortable question, but there was a letter in the newsletter from uh, Professor Emeritus of History, Liam Kennedy, I'm sure you've seen it. And he's, he has put it to you that he has invited you to speak to him on a personal basis on many occasions. You're not under any obligation to go for a cup of coffee with anyone. Of course you're not. But he is making this point that perhaps you only want to speak to people who are interested in constitutional change? Uh, the, my record speaks for itself in relation to that. I suppose my response to that is I, I, I answered and I have answered repeatedly Liam's question. You know, I've done that very, very publicly. Like one thing I would say to, to many of my critics, come and talk to me, absolutely, and I'm happy to meet people. And, you know, bear in mind that Liam asked that question to me at a seminar we were both present at that seminar. He was there and, and I responded. Uh, the qu thing I would say is people can ask me questions, but they don't get to write the script for my answer. You know, so I, I get to answer for myself. I've given people my answer uh, very, very publicly, uh, repetitively as well. Uh, they might, might not like my answer, but it's my answer. They don't get to write my answer as well as scripting the question. So... Can I take us into more philosophical areas? I, when I read the newspapers, when I listen to reports, and this is, this is my experience over 20, 30 years, when you read pieces, opinion pieces in the Southern media, etc., they don't like Northern nationalists an awful lot, in many cases. I just wonder, this deep-seated partitionism and deep-seated in very powerful places. You're talking about a campaign. But I think I can report with reasonable certainty that many, many parts of the Irish establishment and Irish media establishment would fight tooth and nail against any possible constitutional change. And that's from a variety of, of political backgrounds, from Socialists on the on the hard left to um, people on the hard right to conservatives, it would seem like a very powerful block to to, to fight against. Would you be concerned about that? Well, first thing is that essentially on the island uh, we've turned our backs on each other for over a hundred years. You know, in some senses, partition has had the effect, the intended effect. And it's not surprising to me that, 
you know, there is much more work to be done in terms of talking to each other on the island now. In fact, you know, before we ever get to constitutional change, the work that's going on around a shared island, I think is very important. We need to engage with each other now. We're not talking to each other enough. But the second response to that would really be the evidence suggests otherwise. Like, it's hard to avoid this question. Almost everybody now uh, that I can think of is engaged in this discussion. There's just so much work going on, whether it's universities, research institutes, newspapers. We talked about the Irish Times, Orange Project, radio programs. You know, it is is everywhere. So in reality, I think whatever people's personal views may be, people are clearly engaging all across the island in this conversation. The fact that we're doing this podcast now suggests that that the discussion is happening. We need to talk to each other more. Partition has had an impact. The island is siloed and that we need to to find ways to 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 sort of dissolve that and to overcome that. But ultimately the preparatory work has started. People are uh, thinking about these things in great depth and detail. You know, hardly a week goes by without another book coming out in relation to this. I may get round to writing one myself someday. Um, but I think that's all to be welcomed. And to, So I think some of these discussions, you know, Kieran, there's there's the headline and there's a drama and there's a tweet and then there's a looking out at what's actually happening. Something's happening on the island and I think we need to nurture, take care of that, protect it and build on it. Just... In terms of Ireland's culture, I suppose, and I'll get on to Northern Ireland in a, sec- in, a, in, a, in a second, I mean, is there a potential in the negotiations and this new deal and the, and the, 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 the you know, you might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm not just talking about symbols, you know, such as the flag, such as the, the anthem and such as the Irish language, for example. And all of these things have been kind of thrown on the table and before negoti- negotiations have even started have been really given up already by various people, Leo Varadkar, for example. And I just wonder if you're speaking to a patriotic person in Athlone who is maybe concerned about the entire island becoming a big Northern Ireland. I mean, how could you reassure that person? Well, the first thing, again, is that I've tried to reiterate here, build on the best North and South. Now, why would you want to throw out things that that are working North and South in in the here and now? You build on those. But, you know, let's think about it, persuading anybody. Why would you want to enter a conversation about constitutional change and not be imaginative and ambitious? If there's an opportunity to improve the lives of people North and South, to do things better on the island, to really unleash the potential of the island, I, you know, I and others would hope to be able to persuade people across the island that that's a conversation you want to be part of. Uh, so we can do better, we can do things differently, but, you know, why seal things off from the conversation? Why lock the door and, and, and not open that door and enter and have that discussion? So I see this as, you know, and this may be a very personal view, as an exciting discussion. You know, we, we have a chance to do things differently, to look at the last hundred years, to see how people on this island have hurt each other in tremendous ways, to not replicate that and to be imaginative and to be ambitious. You know, why would you not want to be ambitious for a new Ireland? I want this new Ireland to be, you know, a serious global success story. So 
that's how I would hope really to persuade people north and south to, to join the discussion and to vote for change. And Northern Ireland has existed for over a hundred years now. And there, there are a minority of people who have embraced, developed and um, grown into a Northern Ireland identity. Do you think that that identity and perhaps some of the things politically like a, like a, some sort of Northern Ireland assembly and the, or even things culturally like, you know, the Northern Ireland football team, could those continue in a new Ireland, in a united Ireland or is a united Ireland about getting rid of those things? What we're essentially doing at the at the moment is we're at the start of of, of writing the story of what this new Ireland uh, will will look like. We know the framework of the here and now. I think the important thing for me in this is is really that we don't make assumptions about people either way. So ultimately, talking to people about what would make them comfortable in in new arrangements. So, you know, again, and this is entirely speaking for myself, um, if the new arrangements that we need to make people comfortable embrace uh, the importance of Northern Irish identity for a large number of people in the North Northern Ireland, then that's something I think we you have to be open to in a conversation. But ultimately, we need to get into the details of talking to people as to what what it, what it is would make them feel comfortable. And the reason I say that is that I've often been struck, like a number of people in the discussion, is that you know you go into a conversation thinking this is going to be a discussion about flags and emblems and about identity, and and suddenly you're talking about the health service and about jobs and pensions and questions around that. So when you begin to get into the real fine detail of this, what, what is actually making people anxious very often is what will this mean for my job? What will this mean for my salary, for my children's education? What will it mean for, you know, healthcare on, on the island? So let's have those discussions. Let's see. But ultimately for me, you know, it's about accommodating people, reconciling people and finding out what will make people comfortable in this new arrangement. Professor Colin Harvey, thank you. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from British Pathé and the BBC. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.